Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. All right, so this is a, an interesting section of Mark. So from Mark 7, 24 through 8, 10, though that, that section, there's three stories, and they all center around Jesus in a Gentile area. We started talking about this last week. So Jesus begins, there's a map behind me. So he begins down there in, oh, I've made the wrong slide. It doesn't have any of the things on it that would be helpful. You can't, y'all can't read any of that. So there's a place there called Gennesaret that you can't see. That's where Jesus was. He was on the Sea of Galilee and uh, some Pharisees came and they came to confront him. And uh, at least to investigate, I think more than investigate, they were trying to harass him. And there's this big controversy we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Jesus saying the oral law that y'all follow, it's not binding. And actually, your, your whole understanding of what makes somebody unclean or defiled, that's wrong too. It's not the stuff that's out here that, that we touch. It's what comes out of our heart. So huge controversy. And after that, Jesus leaves. And he intentionally goes to a place, well, it doesn't matter, to a place called uh, Tyre, which is in a Gentile area. And we looked at that last week. 35 miles to a Gentile area. Jews did not travel to Gentile areas because it made them unclean. They certainly didn't go into a Gentile home, which Jesus does. He engages with this woman. We said it's one of the most um, uncomfortable passages for us. It's where Jesus calls a woman a dog. He says it's not right to take a children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And we talked about that last week. What does that look like? And then he travels from, from Tyre to another Gentile area called Sidon. Then he travels back to another area. Uh, it's, it's the Decapolis. It's a 120-mile roundabout, indirect travel itinerary in a Gentile area. Why would he do that? One, logistically, I think he wanted to be alone with the disciples. He was trying to avoid the crowds and everywhere he went in Jewish areas, crowds were coming. He was being swarmed because people wanted something from him. He was also trying to avoid controversy. Again, these religious leaders had pursued him from Jerusalem to Gennesaret. I think they're trying to shut him down and he's trying to avoid them. So I think primarily so he can spend time with the disciples teaching them. I also think theologically, he's just said, it's not what's out here that makes you unclean. It's what comes from, it's what's in your heart. And so then he demonstrates that by going to areas that a a Jewish man would never go to voluntarily because it would make them unclean. And certainly the idea of the Messiah is that he would cleanse the land of the Gentiles, not that he would go and minister to Gentiles. So Jesus is very, very far outside the box of of the Jewish Messiah at this point, and there are these three scenes in this Gentile mission trip. The one last week where he heals this woman's daughter who's demon-possessed. And today we're going to see him heal a man who's a deaf mute. Your Bible may say he has uh, trouble talking. The, the word means the same thing. We don't know if he either had a, a large, uh, a great amount of difficulty talking or if he couldn't talk. And then feeding a large crowd. So he's doing both of these things in Gentile areas. And if I'd done the map right, you would be able to see. It's not your fault. I'm the one that made the map. All right, here we go. Verse, what? I didn't hear what she said. Verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. So all of that is Gentile area. There's some people brought to him a man who was deaf and mute, or again, your Bible may say could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. 
After Jesus took him aside away from the crowd, he put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. That's gross. <laughs> it is. It's holy spit, but it's still spit. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I have compassion for these people. They've, been with, they've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I, if I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Jesus' disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. Jesus told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well, and he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After Jesus had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. So, two stories, heals a, a deaf mute man, feeds a large crowd. What's going on in these two stories? So two words for us, one word, like literally one word from each story, and then something that to me kind of struck me as unique in each story. So in that first story of Jesus healing the deaf mute, the word that jumps out is well. He does all things well. So that word well means fitly, suitably, appropriately. It actually can be transferred beautifully. He does, he does all things in a manner that's fitting and appropriate to the situation at hand. Keep that in mind as we talk. He does all things well. When I think about that miracle, what jumps out to me is how, how physical it is. Jesus putting his fingers in this guy's ears and it, it seems to me he's spitting on the guy's tongue, which again, which is just gross. But there, there's, why, why is he doing that? We know he doesn't need to do those things. In the previous story, he, he delivered a, a girl from demonic bondage. He didn't even see her. This girl's mom comes to him, falls at his feet and says, my daughter's demon possessed, will you help her? And then because of their interaction, this woman's faith, Jesus says, you can go home. The demon has left your daughter. He never even saw the little girl. She, wasn't, she was still at home. We know he, do, he doesn't need to touch anybody. He certainly doesn't need to spit on anybody. Why is he doing that? I think it's actually his kindness. We say Jesus meets us where we are. That's a phrase that we use sometimes. Jesus meets us where we are. This is what that looks like. Here's a man who is deaf. He can't. He literally has never heard about Jesus. He never has. And so here's this, this man, and he's, he's been brought to Jesus, probably don't have a clue who he is. Certainly he can't understand anything Jesus is saying to him. And Jesus, I think, again, out of kindness, pulls him out of the crowd, separates him. Hey, I, just me and you. Puts his fingers in his ears and spits on his tongue as a way of saying, this, this is what I'm doing. I'm healing you. He wants him to know. This is, this is me healing you. There's actually some evidence that uh, other healers, they would do this kind of thing, particularly with, they would make balms and, you know, and, 
and uh, compresses and put it on places that hurt. And Jesus said he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't, no eye of newt or, you know, the sprig of something that grows on the north side of the mountain. He doesn't use any of that stuff. I think one of the things he's trying to communicate is that it's not the technique. It's the person. And he wants this guy to see him as the one who heals. Again, to me, it's the kindness of Jesus. He's meeting this man who's deaf right where he is. He's communicating in a very demonstrative, almost like charades, this very demonstrative way so that this guy can understand this is what I'm doing. And then obviously once he heals him, he can, he can speak to him. Interesting story. And then we see this feeding of a large crowd. And the word there is satisfied. Everybody ate and were satisfied. That means exactly what you think. It means they ate all they wanted. It reminds us of another feeding miracle. And probably one of the things with this story, you're probably thinking the same thing. Why is, why is Mark telling, why that one? We just, we just read one, and it was actually kind of more impressive. He fed more people with less food. I couldn't do either one of them, but he fed more people with less food. The last time, 5,000 people plus women and children with five loaves of bread and two fish. This time we got 4,000 men plus women and children with seven loaves of bread and some sardines. Less impressive in that sense. Again, I couldn't do either one, but why this same story? What, what's, what's going on there? And I think that word satisfies a key word. It's the same word that's used in Mark 6. When Jesus feeds a crowd of Jews, and this time he's feeding a crowd of Gentiles, and that's what I think Mark wants us to know. Same thing. Both in Mark 6, when Jesus feeds 5,000 Jewish men, and in Mark 8, when Jesus feeds 4,000 Gentile men, both times he's motivated by compassion. We've talked about that word before. Such an important word. It means to be moved in the deepest part of who you are. And when Jesus feels compassion, he always acts. He always moves to meet the need. Whatever it is that stirred him to compassion, he addresses. It's not pity. It's not bless your heart. It always is followed by a concrete action, by a kindness. Kindness in the Bible, it means to do something useful for someone else. And Jesus always does that. When he feels compassion, then he acts in kindness. He meets a need. He does that for the Jew and the Gentile, which for us, that's not news. Not news at all. Revolutionary in this time for the Jewish Messiah to be moved by compassion for a crowd of Gentiles. And the result of the miracle is the same. And if you go back and read Mark 6, when Jesus feeds 5,000 Jews, it says they all ate and they were satisfied. Which is the same thing it says in Mark 8 about a crowd of Gentiles. So we have Jesus the Messiah being motivated in both cases by compassion. Same motivation and same result. The people are satisfied. Again, it's a, for us, it's cliche, revolutionary for them that the Jewish Messiah would minister, would, would meet Gentiles where they are in the same way that he did with Jews. The thing that jumps out at me about this story, and you may have noticed it too, is the disciples' question. When Jesus says, I can't send these guys home. They've been with me for three days. So whatever food they had, they've already eaten they probably, the people probably didn't intend on staying with Jesus for three days. But the, the word there for stayed with them, it's this word that's really intense. It's this uh, intentional kind of sticking with him. And so it seems like whatever was going on, they were, they were just loving it. And so they, they stayed. So most likely whatever food they brought, is, they've eaten it. And Jesus says, I can't send them home. They're going to they're gonna faint. They're going to collapse on the way. And then the disciples' question, which again is, is the interesting feature. They say, well, what do you want us to do? And for most of us, we're thinking maybe what he did just a couple of chapters ago. That 
he can probably do that again. It's, the, it's a very similar situation. Very, 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 very close in terms of the circumstances. We have a large crowd that's hungry and we just have a little bit of food. Where have we seen this before? But the disciples don't, they, they for whatever reason, they're not, I don't know that it's that they're not connecting their dots. They're not dumb people. And I think that would be, that, that's, not the, that's not the right avenue to take. Well, they're just dumb and they didn't. Maybe there's some hardness of heart there, some dullness in the disciples. And when that happens to all of us, there's a difference. I'm going to try to make a distinction between not remembering and forgetting. And what I think happens here is I think the disciples don't remember. I don't know that they forgot. So in the Bible, to remember, it's not just to recollect. It's to recollect and then to act on that recollection. It's not just a mental activity. To say I remember is not to say I recall something from yesterday or last week or last month. I don't know that the disciples forgot that Jesus uh, fed a large crowd with a, a, a little bit of food. But I don't know that they remembered in the biblical sense. Even if they recollected the event It didn't impact what they were doing in that moment. Does that make sense? Even if they could say, yes, Jesus has done this before, that recollection did not then propel them to appropriate action in the the present. Like maybe on one hand we could say, well, they just weren't being presumptuous. They didn't want to assume that Jesus, and which is, that's great. There's humility there. Again, I'm wondering if there's more to it than that. I'm wondering if it's just that they don't remember. This is still category breaking for them. The fact that they're in a Gentile area, I'm thinking they're all feeling pretty squeamish about all of it. They're with Jesus and he makes things okay. But they and their parents and their parents' parents and their parents' parents' parents and their parents' parents, all the way back to Moses, have been taught we shouldn't be here and they're there and that's hard to unlearn something that's been passed down for 1500 years and if your understanding of of the messiah it's again he's he's the jewish messiah and he sent first to the jews what everything that jesus is doing again he's jesus and so it makes it okay but i'm thinking you're pretty uncomfortable the whole time you're just ready to get back to the jewish areas of town can we just we get out of here. And so I, I think, again, I think there's a, I don't think they forgot the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. I just don't think they remembered it in the sense of this should be informing what we're doing right now. They haven't put those pieces together, which again, it's not because they're dumb. What Jesus is doing is he's breaking some boundaries that have been in place for literally 1,500 years, and that takes some time. So a few questions for us this morning. I don't have great answers. I just have some questions. One, can you, can I, can we, can we say in all honesty, Jesus does all things well? Like, just think about that question prayerfully. Can you say that? To me, it's easy for me to say God is good, Because that has to do with his character. It's much more difficult for me to say God does all things well. Because that has to do with his activity. And honestly, there are times where I don't like it. And I don't understand it. I'm not someone who believes everything happens, happens because God wants it to. 
I think some things happen because we want them to. And we certainly don't do all things well. And some things happen because Satan does them and he doesn't do anything well. But God is at work. And it can, it's still difficult for me at times to say, to, to say, yes, God, you do all things well. I get frustrated with God's timing at times. I get frustrated with God's methods. I get frustrated with what I see as a lack of urgency or a lack of activity. And so it's a, that's tricky. For, again, it's easy for me to say God is good. I don't question his character. It's much more difficult for me to say, you do all things well. And I wonder for you, can you say that? For me, it becomes a prayer point. God, help me to get to a place where I can see and believe that you do all things well. And it can also be an encouragement. When things are not going great, to say, you know what? He does all things well. He does all. And, and I say that more as kind of, I'm not talking myself into it. I'm reminding myself. This is something that's true that I don't necessarily see right now. I don't know how that lands for you. Some of you are in difficult circumstances. Can you say in the middle of a difficult circumstance, God, you do all things well? We can look back often and retrospectively, we can see how all the pieces fit together. But when you're in the middle of it, it can be really difficult. There may be something for you to chew on. He does all things well. Can you, can I, can we say, Jesus satisfies my desires. He, we saw that in Mark 6. We see that in Mark 8. They all ate and had their fill. They were satisfied, and that's literal. But there's also a spiritual or metaphorical piece around that. Psalm 103, one of the benefits of being in relationship with God, he satisfies our desires with good things. Do you even know, do I know what our desires are? That's one of the reasons we ask you on the first Sunday of the month, if it's your birthday month, to stand up and actually think about what do you want? Most of us, we never enumerate our desires. We still have them, but if we don't explicitly state them, we're never going to bring them to the Lord. They remain subconscious or, or unconscious, unspoken at least. Some of them we're ashamed of. Oftentimes when we start thinking about our desires, it feels selfish. For some of you, when we used to ask you to say what you wanted for your birthday out loud, you just wouldn't even come on that. You wouldn't show up. And some of it was because, you know, the introvert, extrovert thing, which I get. And some of it is because it's very difficult for us to say, this is what I want. It feels selfish to us. Other people have needs. Of course they do. Their needs are greater than mine. Probably. That doesn't mean that you don't have desires. God's supply is infinite. He doesn't say, I'm going to take care of Dutch. Sorry, Trent. And he doesn't do that. Can you, even, can, you, can you name the things that you want for yourself or for your family or for your community? Do you know what your desires are? If you don't, then how in the world are you going to know if God meets those? That idea, God satisfies our desires with good things. It makes me think about, we have those desires, but a lot of times we try to satisfy them with, with, our, with bad things. What does it even mean for him to satisfy our desires with good things? The things that I want, he's going there's, there's, there's a, a, a good way. There's, there's a good thing that he wants to give that satisfies those desires. And you can think of all of the offshoots of that, the way that gets perverted by the enemy and by our flesh and by the world. Good desires that we have that we then fill with or try to meet in bad ways. 
I think about Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane as a model for us. Everything's possible for you. This is what I want. I want you to take this cup from me. That's his desire. And he's willing to state that before the Father. Can you do the same thing? This is what I want. Nevertheless, or yet, not my will, but yours, from a posture of submission. We want to be able to hold both of those things together. We don't want to be petulant children who throw temper tantrums and say, this is what I want. But we also don't want to be these kind of self-created martyrs who just say, whatever you want, whatever you want, whatever you want. We, we negate our personhood. That doesn't, we think that might, on some level, we think that's real humility. That doesn't honor the Lord at all. How do we hold both of those things together? Can you name your desires? And then you submit them to him. The only way I feel like we can pray that prayer is if we believe that God does all things well. To say, not my will, but yours be done. To me, if you mean that, then on some level, you believe that God does all things well. And so that, to me, is how those things hold together. Last question. Do you remember? And do I remember? Not do I recall, but do I recall and then allow that recollection to impact the way I'm living right now? Do I do that? Think about the, we saw the video from camp. Many of you have, if you look back, either your own camp experience or times where the Lord's worked in your life, do you actually remember that? Do you remember your own testimony? Do I remember my own testimony? Not just from when I became a Christian 35 years ago, but the way God worked in my life three months ago. In the Old Testament, they made memorial stones. They set those things out as a reminder. Again, not just a recollection, but hey, remember this so that you then live accordingly. That's the full, the full piece of remembering in the Bible. Do you remember what God has done for you? Do you remember who God is, his character? Do you remember the things that God has said about his kingdom, the things that he values, the way that he works? Are those things that are informing the way you and I are living right now, or are we not remembering? Here's this interesting, real quick, I think we have time. I don't think it's a tangent. This is Acts 10. So most people would say that Mark is Peter's story. Does that make sense? Mark was not an eyewitness of Jesus's ministry. Peter obviously was. Mark is recording Peter's recollections. So this is part of Peter's story in Acts 10. About noon the following day as they were on their journey. So this is a group of people who, who've been sent by an angel to find Peter, a group of Gentiles. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice said, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. It's difficult for us to remember. So 
Peter, he, 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 he's the one that gave Mark the information. He knows, Jesus said, nothing out here that's dirt. None of that stuff makes you dirty. None of that defiles you. None of that makes you unclean. It's what comes from in your heart. He was there when Jesus says to this Gentile woman, don't take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. You can't do that. And she comes back and Jesus says, because of your faith, your daughter's healed. He was there when Jesus heals this deaf, mute Gentile. He was there when Jesus fed 4,000 men plus women and children in a Gentile area. Like he's, he was there for all of that. And still how difficult it is biblically to remember, to recollect those events and then allow that to impact your behavior today. When he sees a vision and the voice of God says to him, get up and eat, what does he say? No. No. It's God talking to him. And he's not dumb. That's how ingrained we can get and how difficult it can be for us, again, biblically, to remember. Things that we think, well, if that happened to me, I would not, I'd be forever changed. Maybe. Probably not. For us to, again, biblically to remember, to recollect. This is what God has done in my life in the past. This is who I know God to be. These are the things God has said about his kingdom and how he wants me to engage with him. And then to allow those truths to impact the way we live now. Do you remember? Or there's some things that you're not remembering so well. Part of the job of the Holy Spirit is to do that. He helps us remember. He guides us into the truth. He helps us remember. So I want to take some time and pray. And I don't want you to try to focus on three things. That's too many. Just, I want you to pick one of those three questions. So if you wouldn't mind closing your eyes. Pick one of those three questions. Personalize it. I don't have any answers, just questions today. Can you say, in my life, Jesus does all things well? Yes or no? Can you say, in my life, God satisfies my desires? Yes or no? Third, do you remember? Do you remember what God has done in your life? Who he is? what he says about his kingdom. Pick one of those three questions. Does all things well, satisfies, do I remember? And pray something like this if you're willing. God, I confess that I, and then wherever it is that you're falling short in that area. God, I confess that it's difficult for me to believe that you do all things well. And you need to tell them why. Because of this, that, and the other. And I need help in that area. I need help. I need eyes to see and a heart that believes that particularly when things are going sideways, that you're at work redeeming, restoring, that I can trust you to do all things well. When you're doing things that seem out of character, out of the ordinary, spitting on people, that you're, that you're doing it, 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 it all comes together. When you give me grace 
to walk in this reality. And that whatever yours is, if it's remembering, you may say, I don't even know how to, if I, if I don't remember, then what am I, I don't know how to get started. Then you just say to the Lord, Holy Spirit, part, I, I recognize part of your role in my life is to help me remember, is to guide me into the truth. And sometimes guiding me into the truth is taking me back. So would you remind me? And again, most likely, reminding it's not teaching you something you don't know. It's pulling something out that's already in there. Holy Spirit, I pray for all of us. And we would, you would give us grace to walk more closely, to track more tightly with Jesus. We want to do that this week. We want to be able to say with deep confidence and assurance, Jesus does everything well. He satisfies all my desires. In order to do those things, we know we have to remember who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 